Hi there, listeners. As the world hits on a full year of pandemic restrictions, we know that continued isolation is particularly tough for a lot of people right now. So while we continue to prepare season 5, we have decided to make last month's Patreon half-pint episode freely available to all our listeners. In this half-pint, I expand a little bit on the subject matter of our season 4 finale, Destructive Unionism. So if you haven't already listened to that episode, it's a good idea to go back and check it out first so that you understand the background. You can find a link to that episode in the description below. This extra content wouldn't exist without the generous support of our wonderful patrons. If you would like to support the podcast yourself and gain access to our whole back catalogue of extra content along the way, you can sign up to our Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. On the morning of the 1st of January, 1801, New Year's celebrations were few and far between on the streets of central Dublin. As the early morning street hawkers and market sellers quietly set up their stalls, they might have noticed a curiously heavy atmosphere amid the city's austere greystone porticos and its gleaming Georgian windows. No doubt, many passers-by in the central thoroughfare of College Green would have raised their eyes to cast a glance at the great columns of Parliament House. Until yesterday, this was the glittering seat of colonial power in Ireland. Some observers might have felt a pang of sorrow, or even despair. Others might have felt a gentle twinge of spite or joy. For nevermore would this grand structure house an Irish government. From today, Ireland would be governed directly from the halls of Westminster. That is to say, for most ordinary Dubliners, from a strange place on a strange island far away where strange men with their even stranger customs would from now on decide the fate of the Irish. Perhaps one of those figures pausing momentarily at the crossroads of College Green was a slight, grey-haired, 55-year-old man clad in an expensive black wool riding coat and, as was the fashion of the time, a high-necked ivory cravat. Only a few years earlier, this man had risen to become one of the most prominent and respected figures in his nation. For him, the grandiose façade of Parliament buildings was far more than a mere symbol of autonomous government. It represented the pinnacle of his life's work, and the struggle to render into being the true face of what he saw as the Irish nation. Now, as he watched teams of footmen leave the Parliament building carrying crates of drafted documents, gilded chairs, and splendorous portraits of long-dead statesmen which used to hang on its walls, as he watched the heavy bolts of the main doors being locked against him forever, and as he witnessed the sheer emptiness of this former jewel in the crown of Dublin cityscape, he must have mused on the fact that, for a time, he had wielded such influence in this place that the very institution had borne his name. 
Perhaps this man believed that he would soon be forgotten in the country that he devoted his life to. Or perhaps not. Perhaps he knew that what he and his political movement had achieved could never truly be undone. Perhaps, even, this man was standing on the very spot where less than 100 years later a statue would be erected in his honour. A striking likeness in bronze, depicting him in the triumphant frenzy of one of his famously dazzling speeches. Confident, forward-looking, with his right hand raised victoriously towards the heavens. It would be a statue that celebrated the man, Henry Grattan, and his once boundless ambition for what had become known as Grattan's Parliament. According to some sources, Henry Grattan is said to have been born in 1746 in Fishamble Street, a small winding lane in the old medieval core of Dublin City. If this is true, it was certainly a curious birthplace for a son of Ireland's landed elite. Henry's father, James Grattan MP, was the proprietor of Belcamp Estate, just north of the city, while his mother was a member of the illustrious Marley dynasty, whose patriarch had served as the Attorney General for all Ireland. Here, in Fishamble Street, however, the newborn Henry Grattan would have opened his eyes to a very different Dublin. Named for the open-air fish markets that were historically held there, the street was also renowned for its rambunctious music halls and taverns. Most famously, about four years before Henry was born, Fishamble Street saw the first performance of Handel's Messiah. By the time he was a young boy, the air around this part of Dublin would be laden, as it still is today, with the heavy odour of hops from the recently opened Guinness Brewery, just a few blocks away. The world in which Grattan would grow up, however, was located just outside this labyrinth of ancient streets. His was the Dublin of the colonial elite, a group who had, by Grattan's day, become more confident than ever before. It's all too easy to write off Ireland's Protestant ascendancy as a bunch of English aristocrats squatting awkwardly in Ireland, but their reality was rather more complicated. To be sure, many of those who held Irish titles and owned Irish land lived most, if not all, of their lives in Britain. But the Ascendancy and its Parliament was a thoroughly Irish, albeit colonial Irish, phenomenon. Many of its members were descendants of the so-called New English, that is to say, colonial settlers who had profited from the Cromwellian land seizures of the mid-17th century. Others were descended from the much more ancient Old English, who had settled the country all the way back in the early Middle Ages, these old English dynasties, often considered the only true elite by their countrymen, had frequently been central to resisting British rule in the past, and though they were now loyal to the crown, a certain bombastic pride for their country and lingering resentment towards Westminster seemed to be hardwired into many of their DNA. 
More than this, the ascendancy also included members that were not descended from colonists at all. Many members of the erstwhile Gaelic aristocracy had thrown in their lot with the colonial regime over the centuries, converting to Protestantism so as to keep their landholdings, and claiming back what they would have seen as their rightful place at the pinnacle of Irish society. This last group was often entirely uninterested in British-style honours and privileges, instead preferring to style themselves as the rightful heirs of Gaelic kings and princes, and tracing their genealogies not to the first colonisers, but to ancient Irish high kings like Brian Boru. Over the centuries, these cultural elites had intermarried to various extents, making the ascendancy a very complex matrix of birthright. The newest colonists, the New English, believed that it was their right to rule Ireland so as to bring it even further into the fold of British culture and politics. The more ancient colonial dynasties considered themselves feudal lords of these lands since time immemorial, and the descendants of Gaelic dynasties were deeply invested in the idea that they, as the natural elite of the land, were quite literally born to rule its people. Yet for all this, the ascendancy was not exactly an aristocracy. In fact, their power did not stem from social rank or noble titles at all, but from religion. Since the 17th century, a set of increasingly brutal legislation, known as the Penal Laws, ensured that all positions of power in Ireland would be reserved for the Anglican High Church Protestants. Being a small minority in the country, that meant that the simple fact of professing the Anglican faith could offer a huge degree of social mobility. At the beginning of the 18th century, the richest ascendancy landowner in Ireland, William Connolly, was not a duke or an earl or a lord lieutenant, but the son of an innkeeper. His father had been born into the Gaelic O'Connell clan and had begun his life as a Catholic. For all these reasons, the ascendancy was viewed with deep suspicion back in London. Those recent descendants of the New English were regularly derided as a colonial nouveau riche, mere grandchildren of Cromwell's most depraved right-hand men, who now paraded around Mayfair as if they were just as sophisticated as the quote-unquote true English nobility. Descendants of the Old English, with their strange Franco-Norman names, de Burgo, de Clare, Fitzwilliam, had long been dismissed in England as having gone native during their centuries living in Ireland. Many, it was known, still held close ties to the Catholic faith, and many more boasted an embarrassing array of rebel ancestors. The fact that some Gaelic dynasties had been incorporated into the ascendancy was the greatest stain of all. All at once, the ascendancy could now be criticised as heartless colonial brutes, as bombastic, try-hard social climbers, and as nothing better than indigenous Irish savages, all dressed up, and badly too, as an English gentleman. In London and Bath, where any self-respecting member of the Ascendancy would make a seasonal appearance at least, members of the Irish Ascendancy were constantly lampooned for what was seen as a provincial air of self-importance. Their Irish titles were mocked, the habits and vocabulary they had inevitably picked up from their Catholic countrymen were ridiculed, and the rumours of their unbridled corruption rendered them scandalous. Having been immersed for so long in a country full of treacherous Catholics, the Ascendancy were commonly believed to have imbibed the sinful habits of their indigenous countrymen. They were stereotyped as naturally despotic, 
as overly and uncontrollably sexualized and as deeply duplicitous. Rumours abounded in the marriage markets of Bath that penniless squires from rural Ireland would take advantage of English naivety about Ireland, presenting themselves as grand nobility to gormless heiresses, only to kidnap them and run away with their inheritance. And remember, at this time, Ireland was not a part of the United Kingdom. In many ways, it was viewed very much in the same terms as colonial America. That's to say, an ongoing project of Anglicisation. Even its most loyal denizens were decidedly exotic to Londoners, and the land in which they lived conjured images of danger and lawlessness, the western frontier of civilization itself. But for the same reasons, the Ascendancy did not have to worry too much about the mockery they received in London. Their country was Ireland, with its own parliament, its own standards of behaviour, and its own complex template of social hierarchy. They might be provincial colonials in Piccadilly, but on the streets of Dublin they were little kings, and ultimately it was the prospects of Ireland, and not Britain, that consumed them. Henry Grattan was born into the very pinnacle of ascendancy culture in Ireland. For centuries before, colonial authority on the island had been tenuous at best. Ascendancy rule had been constantly beset by rebellion and overthrow, with both Irish and British-descended factions incessantly fracturing and defecting to one camp or another. By the mid-18th century, however, the island had enjoyed about 50 years of relative calm, and its ascendancy had the time and luxury to flex their muscles as a bona fide European elite. The Dublin that Grattan would come to know lay on the fringes of the old city. A new suburban streetscape of red brick mansions, these were a world away from the medieval hodgepodge of Fishamble Street. Their new thoroughfares were wide and airy, running in geometrical lines and opening into grand formal parks. The urban palaces here were built in a uniform style, simple, modern, each three storeys high with basement access for servants, each with an imposing entrance door, always painted in black, and each boasting conspicuously large rectangular windows, providing a clue that those who lived inside did not have to worry about conserving heat. Each graceful terrace and square was equipped with mews, hidden at the back of the houses, where horses and carriages could be summoned at any moment to bring the householders on a pilgrimage to the landmarks of Ascendancy Dublin. The Grand Mall at Sackville Street, just north of the river, where Ireland's Beaumont would parade their latest fashions and perhaps their latest lovers. Or to pay social calls to one of the great landed estates that studded the city's hinterland. Lord Charlemagne's domain at Marino, perhaps, with its decorative Italianate follies, or the magnificent gardens at Powers Court House, at the foot of the Wicklow Mountains. For any visitor to Ascendancy Dublin, the great architectural set-piece of the city was no doubt to be found at College Green. Until just a few decades before, this area was still outside the city limits. It was a marshy and forlorn landscape, hosting only the remains of an old monastic graveyard and the squat medieval warrens of the university, Trinity College. In the 18th century, however, College Green was transformed into the very centre of ascendancy dominance in Ireland. Trinity College, established back in the Middle Ages to promote the Protestant Reformation on the island, was steadily rebuilt into majestic neoclassical squares, rivalling, if not outshining, even the most iconic colleges of Oxford or Cambridge. 
Now this strange educational outpost in the marshes had been transformed into an academy of excellence for ascendancy elites. Students there, including Grattan himself, could walk its leafy squares, safe in the knowledge that they, and they alone, held the fate of the entire country in their hands. Many of those students would have spent much of their time on the other side of the green, where the ascendancy had given a proverbial middle finger to London by building themselves the first purpose-built parliament in the world. While Westminster continued to hold its parliamentary sessions in the drafty pews of a converted chapel, this new Irish parliament turned heads with its revolutionary architectural design. Its ministers sat proudly in a spectacular octagonal chamber, illuminated by skylights from a central dome. Its exterior was graced with curving colonnades of white stone pillars, becoming a touchstone of the neoclassical aesthetic that, at this point, was still at the very forefront of fashion. In fact, the Parliament's daring design was so admired that it would go on to influence the design of public buildings all over the world. The British Museum in London, for instance, is directly modelled on Dublin's Parliament House, as is much of the United States Capitol building in Washington DC. Despite all this self-assured bombast, though, the scions of Protestant supremacy in Ireland knew all too well that their splendid palaces were built on a decidedly shaky foundation. Just a short walk from the delights of College Green, a very different Ireland would all too quickly have come into view. After all, this was a country built on institutionalised oppression on a momentous scale. At the end of the day, colonial power over the island was entirely reliant on the sectarian laws that kept the majority of the population in a state of perpetual subservience. Outside Dublin and Protestant Ulster, the overwhelming majority of Irish people were classed as quote-unquote indigenous or wild Irish. Making up about 75% of the population, these indigenous Irish were viewed as an ever-present threat by the Ascendancy Parliament and Westminster alike. As such, Catholics were barred from practically every aspect of public life on the island, forbidden to vote or run for office, unable to join the army or possess firearms, excluded from legal professions, banned from teaching in schools and from accessing higher education, among countless other restrictions that served to dehumanise, debase and disempower the Catholic majority on a very intimate and everyday level. Irish Protestants who did not subscribe to the official Anglican Church, such as the largely Presbyterian population in colonial Ulster, were also barred to a certain extent from full participation in the colonial regime. These dissenting Protestants were banned from public office too. Their marriages were not officially recognised, and they were even refused entry to that great behemoth of ascendancy education, Trinity College. While the surface of 18th century Ireland may have seemed relatively calm to the ascendancy in the mid-18th century, these everyday oppressions all the while fueled mounting political sedition among its ordinary population. Among both dissenting Protestants in Ulster and the Catholic majority, secret societies and militias roamed the fields and villages. The Protestant Peepa Day Boys and the Catholic Defenders spread terror and confusion on a daily basis, burning homes and industries, mutilating livestock, and essentially filling the gap where law and order should have been with a mafia-style vigilante justice. Meanwhile, corruption among Ireland's ascendancy landowners was largely left unchecked. 
Through the penal laws, the Catholic majority had been almost entirely denuded of their land holdings, with more than 90% of Irish land now under ownership of the Protestant ascendancy. Even in the 18th century, this situation had already created a profoundly dysfunctional economy on the island. In 1740, just five years before Grattan was born, a devastating famine had reduced the entire Irish population by an estimated 20%, which, proportionally, represents an even greater loss of life than the much more famous Great Hunger of the following century. The pitfalls of this economic system were intensified ten times over by a landowning class who often enjoyed a kind of power over their tenants that would have been unthinkable in Britain. In the 1770s, the English economist Arthur Young wrote in horror at what he had witnessed of ascendancy landlords. A landlord in Ireland, he recounts, can scarcely invent an order which a servant, labourer or cotter dares to refuse. Nothing satisfies him but an unlimited submission. Disrespect he may punish with his cane or his horsewhip with the most perfect security. A poor man would have his bones broke if he offered to lift his hand in his own defence. Knocking down is spoken of in this country in a manner that makes an Englishman stare. While there is no doubt that abuse and corruption were widespread in colonial Ireland, and indeed tolerated among ascendancy landowners, we still must keep in mind that the Irish elite were a heterogeneous bunch. Many of them happily profited from institutionalised corruption, but others were horrified by the part they themselves had to play in Ireland's miserable reality. In particular, more and more were becoming increasingly aware that their grip over Ireland was beginning to look untenable. Under the penal laws, Catholic and dissenting factions were growing more hostile with each passing year, and when it came down to it, the ascendancy were outnumbered by ten to one. It was widely recognised that their survival depended on some kind of reform, and it would have to come quickly. The burning question in the House of Commons was how to instigate such reforms in a way that would ensure their own continued dominance while resisting the ever-present threat of a Catholic takeover. Whatever the ascendancy might have wished to do, however, was curbed by their Parliament's legislative dependence on Westminster. Since the Middle Ages, something called Poyning's Law had ensured that the colonial Parliament in Ireland would always be subject to the direct authority of the Parliament in England. In other words, bills drawn up by the Irish House of Commons first had to be reviewed and ratified by Westminster before they could be finalised. This generally meant that only laws which benefited England made it through the Irish House of Commons, even if those same laws ended up being to the detriment of Ireland itself. To the immense fury of Irish politicians, sometimes laws were passed in Westminster without Dublin being consulted at all. The judge Robert Day once described the Irish House of Lords as being, I quote, little better than a parish vestry. This had a number of profoundly negative effects. For one thing, Westminster's tendency to manipulate Ireland's capacity to trade so that it would benefit England over Ireland meant that Irish landowners and business people found themselves constantly facing financial precarity, and oftentimes in huge levels of debt. This, in turn, meant that Irish landowners had less capital to invest in their estates, which quickly became run down and unproductive, leading to rent hikes that only made tenants more aggrieved and consolidated widespread poverty that harmed production even more. For Westminster, these insidious effects were mostly invisible. 
From their point of view, Ireland's problems were simply a question of chronic ascendancy mismanagement, which made them even more eager to take decisions out of the hands of the Dublin Parliament. All this was bad enough, but then came the 1770s, and a series of events that would heighten discontent among the ascendancy politicians more than ever before. The colonial assemblies of America started to agitate against British-imposed taxes and legislation. The situations between America and Ireland at this point were analogous in more ways than one. Both colonial America and colonial Ireland essentially represented outposts of British law and order in a largely hostile territory. Britain depended on them to watch over and oversee these places that were sending huge amounts of money back to London. Both groups too had developed a distinct identity of their own over the centuries since colonisation, and their priorities had considerably diverged over that time with those of Westminster. Both America and Ireland indeed were considerably geographically removed from Britain, meaning that it was logistically quite difficult for London to keep a constant eye on what their colonial assemblies there were actually up to. Most of all, as we discussed in our Destructive Unionism episode, the American colonists had deep cultural ties with one group on the island of Ireland, the dissenting Protestants of Ulster. Both populations mostly practiced non-conforming versions of Protestantism, and the potential freedom to practice these religions had been a main motivation in their decision to settle Ireland and North America back in the 17th century. Unlike high church Protestants of the ascendancy and the Catholic majority, for whom any kind of governmental reform was generally conceived in accordance with the existing monarchy, Ulster dissenters shared their American cousins' growing interest in a monarchless state, a secular republic, where all forms of worship would be tolerated and wherein titles and aristocracies and privileges and honours would be abolished for good. When the American colonies broke out into full-on revolution, tensions in Ireland immediately began to mount. So many of Britain's army troops in Ireland had been redeployed to America to fight against the revolution that Irish Protestants moved to form an emergency militia in order to protect the colonial regime in the absence of a full and functioning military. This militia was called the Irish Volunteers, and it was initially praised by Westminster for its loyalty to the crown. Little did Westminster realise what it was about to become. Within only a few years, this charming little show of loyalty had transformed into an ungovernable monster. Within only a few years, membership of the Irish Volunteers grew from only 12,000 to 60,000 members. What had started out life as a small local defence force now looked dangerously like a national army. Even worse, the Volunteers were becoming so confident that they began to openly flout the penal laws. They allowed dissenters and Catholics to join their ranks in order to expand the militia and its influence even further. Reactions to the Irish Volunteers were very different in Westminster and in Dublin. The British Parliament, deeply embroiled in the American wars and subsequent battles with the French, tried to tread lightly with this intimidating new force in Ireland. Its increasingly loud demands were given consideration, and Westminster capitulated rather more than was necessary, just to keep the Volunteers happy and quiet. For the Ascendancy Parliament at College Green, however, 
the volunteers represented a game changer. The Ascendancy immediately understood that this huge new military reserve, over which Westminster had little to no control, could be used to exert immense political pressure during this moment of Britain's military weakness. In particular, it was the Irish Patriot Party, led by none other than Henry Grattan, that saw a unique opportunity in the military upheaval that was taking over Dublin. Grattan was in many ways a model of ascendancy youth. He studied classics at Trinity, and had gone on to study law in London's Middle Temple. In 1775, on the eve of the American Revolution, he had taken over leadership of the Irish Patriot Party in the Irish Parliament at the tender age of 29, and had quickly risen to prominence in Parliament through his famously stirring speeches. Grattan too had long been aggrieved by Westminster's catastrophic interference in Irish governance, and also believed that some kind of emancipation for Catholics and dissenters was essential to the long-term survival of the colonial regime. Now, with the volunteers on the rise, he saw his chance. Grattan's Patriot Party began to follow the playbook of the American Revolution to the word. Just like the American revolutionaries, they started to boycott British goods that imposed unfair taxes on Ireland. They lobbied for free trade, unrestricted by Westminster, so that Ireland would no longer exist merely as a bulwark for the British economy. They refused to vote for taxes that would support the British government, and most potently of all, they refused to recognise the authority of the medieval Poynings Law. All these measures, provocative as they were, could be pushed further and further with a simple nod to the growing ranks of the Irish volunteers. The volunteers themselves were, at this stage, regularly parading in their bright red uniforms on College Green, raising their firearms high above their heads, and calling for reforms now from Westminster, or, and I quote, a speedy revolution. To Britain's dismay, all of this action received political support from Britain's enemies in America. George Washington himself is said to have declared, Patriots of Ireland, your cause is identical with mine. Ulster Protestants' close ties with revolutionary America rendered this sentiment more than little chilling for the British administration. Faced with the very real threat of losing Ireland as well as America, Westminster finally assented to Grattan's demands in 1782, and agreed to a new constitution for the Parliament of Ireland. Britain renounced all right to legislate for Ireland. The Dublin Parliament was given complete legislative independence from the British Privy Council, and the most oppressive restrictions of Poyning's Law were lifted for the first time in over 300 years. On news of the reforms, the streets of Ascendancy Dublin broke into a state of rejoice that had probably not been witnessed in living memory. 
shops sold printed engravings of Grattan's face, and a portrait of him was erected in his alma mater, Trinity College. In a landmark speech on the floor of the Irish House of Commons, Grattan himself jubilantly celebrated Ireland winning more legislative independence than it had ever enjoyed in the history of colonial rule. I found Ireland on her knees, he called into the crowd. I watched over her with a paternal solicitude. I have traced her progress from injuries to arms and from arms to liberty. Ireland is now a nation. She is no longer a wretched colony, returning thanks to her governor for his rapine and to her king for his oppression. Look to the rest of Europe and contemplate yourself and be satisfied. You have sought liberty on her own principle. See the Presbyterians of Bangor petition for the freedom of Catholics of Munster. You have moulded the jarring elements of your country into a nation. In this proceeding, you had not the advantages that were common to other great countries. No monuments, no trophies, none of those outward and visible signs of greatness. I am come to break that chain. And I congratulate my country, who with nothing but a stone and a sling, and what oppression could not take away, the favour of heaven, accomplished her own redemption, and left you nothing to add, and everything to admire. On the streets of Dublin, the new regime quickly became known as Grattan's Parliament. Grattan and his Patriot Party immediately began to push through major reforms, including offering the vote to Catholic property holders of a certain income, a small but highly symbolic gesture, all the more in that it hinted at full Catholic emancipation sometime in the future. Yet, as the ascendancy grew ever more triumphant in their Dublin Parliament, relations with their counterparts in Westminster were fast degrading. English merchants were outraged at the idea that Ireland might now have access to free trade like them, and others, including the king himself, were horrified at the Irish Parliament's lip service to potential Catholic emancipation. London feared that should Catholics be allowed to stand for office, they would soon replace the Protestant ascendancy entirely in the House of Commons and ally with Catholic France against the United Kingdom. At the outbreak of the French Revolution in 1789, Westminster increasingly felt that its accessions to the Irish Parliament had been a potentially fatal mistake. Britain was right to be worried. Perhaps unwittingly, Grattan and his Parliament had set a series of events in motion that would make the squabbles between Dublin and Westminster look like a walk in the park. What the Patriot Party had not entirely understood was the sheer resonance of their actions in the minds of ordinary Irish people. A lot of this ultimately comes back to the Irish Volunteers, that ragtag militia that the Parliament had extolled and indeed exploited for its own ends. While the Volunteers had provided crucial leverage for the Dublin Parliament to get its way, the ascendancy seemed to have underestimated how a renegade organisation like this might change public attitudes towards the colonial regime. During these years, the Irish Volunteers had actually broken a huge watershed in the Irish psyche. They had effectively rendered the penal laws null and void. They had become non-denominational, 
welcoming Catholics, Protestants and dissenters to their ranks, and promoting the idea that each of these groups was stronger when they were united. More than this, the entire country could now see that the volunteers' methods were singularly successful. Grattan's parliament itself stood as an undeniable symbol of what the Irish could achieve when they simply ignored the penal laws. For Catholics, Protestants and dissenters alike, it now seemed painfully obvious that the prosperity and happiness that they all craved would not be achieved through one group vanquishing the other, but through cooperation against a greater enemy that wanted to deny them those chances, the British government. In parallel to the rise of Grattan's parliament, secular political societies began to form across Ireland, bringing together Catholics and Protestants in the pursuit of a completely independent republic. Since the American Revolution had stoked the fire of reform among Protestants in the 1770s, the French Revolution of 1789 had shown Catholics that elite minorities, no matter how powerful, were essentially very vulnerable. Until this point, Irish Catholics had generally been monarchical in their politics, but now they started to drift towards the same kind of ideology as their Protestant neighbours in Ulster, republicanism. One secular society known as the United Irishmen, boasting members from all of Ireland's religious factions, combined the ideals of both the American and French revolutions to unite the Irish people in a single unbroken front. Membership of this rebel society grew rapidly, with many of its participants being drawn directly from the former Irish volunteers. Secretly colluding with revolutionary France, then at war with the UK, the United Irishmen rose up in a momentous rebellion against British rule in the hot summer of 1798. In a deadliest simultaneous strike, United Irishmen rose up all over the country. The capital, Dublin, was surrounded by insurgents, and French expeditionary forces were known to be on the sea, coming to help end British rule on the island of Ireland for good. The sheer violence of this uprising can hardly be overestimated, not least because the rebels, having no access to firearms, often stormed the British army using only the farm implements they had in their possessions. While the British eventually succeeded in crushing the rebellion, the loss of life was enormous and the scars were long-lasting. By some estimates, 30,000 people died during the summer of 1798, almost all from the losing side. What's more, in the wake of the rebellion, the entire country was immediately put into lockdown and martial law declared. Notoriously gruesome reprisals were carried out by the British army all over the island, but most particularly in Presbyterian Antrim and Down, the epicentre of Republican radicalism. Back in Dublin, all eyes were on Henry Grattan. Nobody knows whether or not Grattan was involved with the Republican radicals before 1798, or if he knew what was about to happen, but it seems highly unlikely that the rebellion would have had his support. For all Grattan's talk of nationhood and legislative independence, he and his Irish Patriot Party were ultimately loyalists, and had never suggested breaking the political connection with England or the Crown. The 1798 rebellion, of course, would inevitably destroy everything that Grattan had worked for for so long. The Irish nation he had dreamed of was a quintessentially undemocratic one, 
just like most European nations at the time. His vision was for educated men of high society to play the role of patriarchs to a grateful populace, not a radical regime of complete egalitarianism, where the Grand House of Parliament would be overrun by pike-wielding revolutionaries. Nonetheless, it was clear that the rallying cries of the Irish Patriot Party had played a fundamental role in uniting the different political factions in Ireland, and Grattan was popularly declared guilty by association. He himself was lampooned as a rebel leader by the British media, which had long sought a reason to decry this troublesome Irish upstart. His portrait was removed in disgrace from the halls of Trinity College, and instead of engraved likenesses, shops in Dublin now sold caricatures of Grattan in French revolutionary uniform. Grattan himself retired from politics that same summer, hoping to protect the parliament by removing his name from the limelight, but all to no avail. As we discussed in our main episode, the colonial Irish Parliament's days were now numbered. Within just three years, Westminster had moved to abolish the entire institution, and on the morning of the 1st of January 1801, Ireland was finally inducted into the United Kingdom, and subject to total control from London. Yet Grattan wasn't going to disappear from the minds of Dubliners all that quickly. Few could forget the unique glimmer of hope that had once been offered by Grattan's Parliament, it said that during the last ever session of the Irish House of Commons, the crowd broke into spontaneous applause for Henry Grattan. But when this great orator went to give his final speech, the talent upon which his spectacular rise to power had been built, he found himself unable to speak. It was only the following May that he made his definitive pronouncement on the dissolution of everything his life had been built on. His words and deeds still seem to echo from the solid and triumphant statue that today stands in front of the defunct Irish Parliament buildings on College Green. I will remain anchored here with fidelity to the fortunes of my country, Grattan declared, faithful to her freedom, faithful to her fall. And that's all from this edition of the Irish Passport Half Pints. A huge thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters who keep us running. Slán, everyone.